Hey folks, this is Dean Friedman, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, the podcast that talks about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. This is episode number 79. And joining me is singer-songwriter Dean Friedman. You know, when I think of those great 70s, and I hate this term, one-hit wonders, you know, I think of Sammy John's Chevy Van, I think of Dave Loggins, Please Come to Boston, and I think of Dean Friedman's Ariel. I got to speak with Dean about Ariel and about his self-titled debut album, Dean Friedman, obviously, came out 45 years ago. But Dean is still working, and he has a new album that just came out last year. It's called... American Lullaby, and what Dean has done here is he's put together an album that is a time capsule of the last six years, so that may or may not be a good thing for us to uh, remember what happened in this six-year period, but at least if we want to remember it, Dean has captured it. I spoke with Dean about a lot of other topics, and I can't wait to bring you that. Before we get to that interview, I'd like to remind you, you can find me on social media on Twitter, at Mike's Records. And it's at Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Please visit michaelsrecordcollection.com for all my stuff, my social media links. Uh, There's a link there to my free newsletter. You can sign up for that, get that every week. And you can also link to my Patreon page where you can visit the various different levels of how you can support this show and the newsletter. Please support it. You can do that for as little as $2 a month. And there are benefits that go up as as your membership grows uh, to a higher level. I'd also like to invite you to send me an email, drop me a line, let me know how I'm doing, provide some feedback, ask a question, whatever you want. You can do that at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. All right, with all of that business out of the way, let's get to that interview with Dean Friedman. Here we go. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm very excited to have with me for this episode, singer-songwriter Dean Friedman. Thank you for your time, sir. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me, Michael. I've uh, I've been a fan of your music for quite some time and uh, going all the way back to 1977. And of course, uh, your self-titled album with uh, the hit Ariel. And um, that was a song that kind of grabbed my attention back when it came out. I like to point to that song when when uh, young people don't believe me that TV stations used to sign off at night. (laughs) That's right. Uh, An anachronism. Yeah, and we're also going to be talking about your most recent release, uh, American Lullaby, which just came out last year. So lots of ground to cover. And I want to start and get Ariel out of the way because I'm sure you, you've talked about it a lot over the, the course of the last uh, 45 years. Um, happy anniversary to uh, to your, your self-titled release, by the way. And the obvious question that you've probably had a million times is how autobiographical is the song? And what, if any, liberties were taken with the story in the song? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, people ask if there there is an Ariel. And in truth, it was a composite of all these teenage girls I I had a crush on growing up in the suburbs uh, in Paramus. And uh, I sort of combined them into sort of one idealized uh, Ariel. And, uh, you know, I'd say it's true of most of my songs that they're based on 
my true life experiences and the world around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I make ample use of my poetic license, which, which is a nice way of saying that I get to lie and make things up. <laughs> so uh, a lot of the scenes and the song and the lyrics are, are based on things that happened to me or mm-hmm. my family. Uh, you know, we did get a lot of burgers at uh, the Dairy Queen and Shakes. Uh, my brother did collect quarters for the friends of BAI at the Paramus Park Mall. So, um, you know, th- those elements of, you know, concrete detail uh, were features in the life that I grew up in in Paramus. Uh, but then I wrapped a story around it. Yeah. I met a young girl, she sang mighty fine Tears on my pillow at Ave Maria Standing by the waterfall in Paramus Park She was working for the friends of B.A.I. She was collecting the waters in a paper cup She was looking for change, and so was I It's uh, It's a great little story, of course, there's Humor is a big part of what you do, and um, that kind of, I think, sets you apart from a lot of other singer-songwriters that kind of dabble in, in your uh, genres, kind of kind of a mixture of some folk and some rock, a little bit of jazz thrown in there from time to time. And um, I think that's what gives you your, your unique um, sort of uh, niche within the, within the niche, I guess. But uh, I, I like that uh, this song did really well for you. It went to number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100, number 17 on Cashbox, charted in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. So it did very well. But I wonder, because some artists feel handcuffed to their popular songs and, and sort of come to try to distance themselves from it, and some embrace it as the thing that, that they're known for and, and the, they they're thankful that they had them. And, and I think that even artists that are tired of their old hits are, are thankful for, for them. But I wonder what your relationship is with that song at this point. Um, well, I, I love it. I'm, and I'm real proud of it. And I'm glad that people have embraced it and continue to do so. You know, I had sort of mainstream music biz success for such a short infinitesimally brief period of time that I'm still surprised when people know that material. Uh, also, the hits that I had in, in the United States are different than the ones that I had in, in the UK and in Germany and Australia, different places all over the world. And because I don't tour that often, I, you know, I tour maybe 10 weeks out of the year. I, I really have never gotten tired of performing those songs. Uh, it's still a real treat for me to realize that that the, the, the you know folks not just remember the songs but they they, uh, they, they mean a lot to them, yeah. and so I I appreciate that I'm grateful. Okay, the doo wop esque chorus vocal that goes really high. What part of the what part of the writing process did that come into? Were those always part of the the song when you first wrote it, or did they come in during the the album 
recording process or when did those come in? You know, I wrote uh, Ariel while I was fiddling around uh, with a four track TX uh, analog tape machine. And it was the first time I got to play with one. Mm-hmm. And so I think it just sort of naturally led me to overdubbing my vocals to see what that would sound like. And uh, that's how the chorus evolved. And as I kept stacking vocals, <laughs> the pitch kept getting higher and higher. And, you know, also when you're starting at and learning to sing, when you start to learn about your voice, there is a, a tendency to explore the extreme uh, range of your voice. You know, in that instance, it was exploring that, that high falsetto. Probably influenced by the Four Seasons and, and tracks like that, uh, no doubt. And uh, you know, interesting stuff happens when you find the edge of your range. Yeah, and that's how that came about. Although I confess that these days, I don't modulate up a whole step the way I do in the record. Yeah, I was going to ask how. First of all, when you're when you're recording that, do you put any thought whatsoever into how am I going to sing this live and? And then, uh, you know, how does it hold up uh, all these years later? So I imagine... I need a running start to hit some of those notes. (laughs) Fair enough. Now, of course, one of the things that I was surprised about, because when when this album came out, I was, uh, you know, preteen, and uh, I was very unaware, naive about a lot of the realities of the world and some of the ugliness of the world. And I didn't know about the pushback from the label on the, the concern about the the line of Ariel being a Jewish girl in the story. And I just wondered how serious was that pushback? She was a Jewish girl. I fell in love with her. She wrote a number on the back of my hand. I called her up. I was all out of breath. I said, come hear me play in the rock and roll band. Took a shower and I put on my best blue jeans I picked her up in my new VW van She wore a peasant blouse with nothing underneath I said hi, she said yeah, I guess I am It was so foolish uh, And was the, the beginning of my realization That the folks running my record label were idiots um, they were convinced that stations in the South would refuse to play the the single if it made reference to how I had characterized the the girl uh, Ariel as a Jewish girl, mm-hmm. and you know that was just another descriptive element in addition to her being a vegetarian and wearing a peasant blouse and smoking pot. All those things were part of who she was. Yeah, and. But the, the record label was uh, af- afraid of how people would react to it, yeah. um, which is especially unfortunate because the uh, one of the three principles of the label was Jewish and should have known better. Uh, but it was the first single off my first album. I didn't have any leverage. Uh, I was able to negotiate with them to leave it intact on the uh, on the album itself. So the album has the full length version, but uh, when we uh, edited the single. Uh, we had to remove a verse anyway to get to get it under four minutes, uh, and I agreed to alter that verse to say her name was Ariel. I fell in love with her, uh, which you know kind of worked, but I always regretted 
even though I didn't really have any leverage, uh, relenting in that instance, although I did, you know, fight to keep it on the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and indeed, Stations in the South refused to play the edited version. They played the full-length album track with a Jewish girl in it, uh, which, again, just sort of proved the foolishness uh, of my label heads uh, not willing to put out the real thing. It seems like something that a 10-minute focus group could have taken care of, right? <laughs> they didn't have that kind of imagination or smarts. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I think that everything in the song very much identifies this, this person and, and makes it a unique character. And I, I love the, the lyrics are what makes the song so good and, the, and, and believable. And little things like, you know, going to Dairy Queen and she didn't tell you she was a vegetarian and she had some onion rings and a pickle. And it, these are very endearing, I think, traits in the lyrics. You know, I, I, I have to say that a part of my personal style that I can't deny is that I do tend to populate my songs with a lot of detail. And, uh, you know, I think of what I do is, is writing short stories and setting them to music. And for me, all that detail helps to create a scene. And... Uh, if I'm doing my job, the intent is to invite the listener, to invite the audience into the song and uh, to make them almost a, a, a participant in the song. So if someone's listening to one of my songs and can picture that scene and that vivid imagery, almost as if they're stepping into a movie. For me, that's half my job because it makes them, a, it makes the listener a co-conspirator. Because uh, they fill in all the gaps with their own life experience and, and memories and imagination. Uh, and uh, they become part of the song. Uh, I, I always uh, especially admired songwriters like Joni Mitchell and uh, Randy Newman, folks like that who who did that. They, they, they created a scene, mm-hmm. a, a, a little musical play. And uh, that's something I always aspired to do starting out. And, and still to this day, when I'm sitting down to write a song, that's my goal is to create an experience that the listener can be immersed in. Mm-hmm. World building. Yeah. 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 It's better than, uh, I mean, it's nice to have a catchy little lyric, but, um, and a hook, but uh, yeah, when, when a song can pull you in and, and make you a part of it, it's, it's pretty amazing. And that, I think we've all had that experience as young, young, foolish teenagers or t- young 20 somethings where we've felt that that person smiles and you just melt. And I, I think it, 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 you did a great job of describing that experience and and just a, a tremendous song. And and um, I know that I hate the I hate the term one hit wonder. And I know that you've had other hits in other places. So it really. It really, you know, I get defensive when people call people one hit wonders. And I, I, well, actually, that person had another hit that went to number 38, you know, two years later or whatever. But uh, how do you feel about that term? Well, you know, I appreciate your commenting uh, on that terminology uh, the way you just did. I always found it a, a disparaging remark because it implies that the artist didn't have the talent to have uh, more successes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth is, is that in, in 
reality, if someone's a one hit wonder, what that suggests to me is that their label, their manager, uh, and uh, whoever was working uh, for them in terms of publishing and and, and uh, as an agent failed in their job. Because if an artist demonstrates that they were able to break through uh, to chart a record, that suggests to me that they have the talent, uh, that the next step is that, is that the organization around them has to, to, to prove their chops and their mm. expertise at being able to develop a career. Right. But usually what happens, unfortunately, is that that infrastructure around the artist is uh, ultimately abusing the artist on a short-term basis uh, without the vision for what it takes to build a career. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, when I hear the term uh, one-hit wonder, to me that's really an indictment of the industry, a, a music business that eats their young uh, for short-term game uh, and uh, out of greed and selfishness uh, instead of providing an environment and the tools for that artist to grow and mature and develop uh, and, and a safe environment. Instead, what the industry does is they, they put these they put typical artists on the road for, uh, you know, 200 days out of the year, exhausting them, making it more likely that they're going to uh, self-medicate with drugs just to survive mm -hmm. uh, and providing no kind of infrastructure uh, as I say, to cultivate and develop and support the artist. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just trying to suck them dry. That's yeah. the nature of the business. It hasn't changed one iota. Uh, and the only difference is that there are more players taking advantage of musicians. When, when a guy like the head of Spotify tells artists, you know, don't complain about getting one thousandth of a penny per, per track, uh, per stream, you have to release more albums. You have to do even more work than you're doing now. That's insane. Yeah. That, that's that's abusive. It's criminal. Yeah. The guy should be in jail. Yeah. I agree with everything you said. I agree with everything you said. It's uh and then you come off the road and they're like, "Well, we're giving you 6 weeks to make another album. Well, when have I had time to write more songs? I've been on the road for the last 200 days." Right. And surprise, <laughs> surprise. If you're not respecting the artist and the music, then you're you're doing them a huge disservice selling them short and uh, you're going to, you're going to destroy the prospects of doing better. In my case, I was fortunate is that even though I had idiots running my label in, in the United States, uh, when my second album came out, uh, the folks in the UK were actually competent <laughs> at their job. Uh, and so I delivered the second album, Willis at the Rocking Chair. My, my US label hated it. They, they called me in and, and yelled at me for half an hour saying I had delivered a, an inferior product. I, I was a spoiled artist. I wasn't listening to anybody. Uh, they, uh, they were just so angry with me. And I was just shaking my head. Who are these idiots? Because I, I knew I'd done a great job. Uh, and sure enough, two weeks after that stupid meeting, uh, we got a, a, a telex in New York. Tell you how long ago it was. <laughs> telex. Uh, saying that uh, the first single off this second album was racing up the charts. Uh, and it became a big hit uh, along with that album. And uh, some folks managed to survive <laughs> up to a point. <laughs> and in my case, 
it was out of sheer stubbornness uh, and uh, irascible uh, persistence uh, that I refused to have any idiot tell me whether or not I could uh, continue to be a musician and be a songwriter and and, and write songs. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you uh, you persisted. <laughs> um, there's a tremendous shift tonally on the Dean Friedman album, uh, you know, from the humor of Ariel and um, and then later songs on the album, like Song for My Mother and the, and the Letter. I just wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about those two songs in particular, because those are two of my favorites on the record. Well, uh, you know, as you said, there's always an element of humor in my writing, but uh, but I do like to balance that with some more sober, serious reflections on the world around. And uh, so, uh, you know, the letter is a song I wrote for my baby sister when she spent a, a year on a kibbutz in Israel. I hadn't uh, written her an actual letter in a long time, so I, I figured I'd write a song. Sunday we woke up early and we drove out to Tyson's farms. Forging ourselves on all the cider and donuts we could fit under both our arms. Picking out penny candy in the country store. Till we collapsed on the porch with our bellies sore. So, what's it like to be on your own? Vagabond away from home in search of some forgotten door. Is it half as good as it sounds? Tell me, have you really found the peace and calm we've all been looking for? Uh, forgetting, of course, that the postage on sending a Quarter inch reel to reel tape to Israel was going to be a lot more than uh, an air air uh, airmail uh, letter, but uh, yeah, no, it was specific and autobiographical, referencing things that we'd all done as kids, going to Tysus Farms and you know picking out penny candy in the country store, mm-hmm. watching the donut machine and eating donuts, uh, and uh, it's something that. Uh, a lot of people found evocative because it did document a time and a place that was familiar to anyone who grew up in Bergen County uh, and, and remembered what it was like in the fall as the leaves were turning and, uh, you know, pumpkins were coming out and uh, uh, you experience that uh, that time of the year and, and that place. Uh, and a uh, song from my mother was something I wrote that was – Talking about what might be a particular experience familiar to, to some folks, but um, more f- so, I think the the idea that is familiar to even more people is the idea that at some point, as you approach some kind of maturity, uh, everyone needs to stop blaming their parents for everything that they feel is wrong about their life, uh, and it's that sense of sort of acknowledging that, yeah, your parents might have been messed up, but uh, you need to forgive them at some point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, like a lot of folks, my parents had some issues that uh, made for uh, some uh, colorful childhood, should I say. 
So the the song tries to grapple with those issues and tries to put it in some perspective, uh, describing the memory of it, the, the experience, you know, a parent with some mental health issues, whether it's bipolar uh, or, you know, manic depressive or whatever it may be. Uh, the song talks about those experiences as a child, but also tries to reflect on putting it in a, in a, in a perspective from the point of view of an adult mm-hmm. and trying to let go of some of that trauma. Yeah. Like a dried and wrinkled prune A deflated toy balloon I came home and found you strewn across the floor And as they lay you on your bed I heard you say If I am dead How come it just keeps on hurting more and more And you left me in the early spring All they said was mommy's resting Now as I to know so young Wasn't something I had done Yeah, I like that lyrically when you talk about the gratification at the end of uh, of finding out it was it was you who was crazy and not me. It was uh, uh it, it is a very sobering song, but it's a, it's a a great song. So, like I said, one of my favorites on the record. So I wanted to find out a little bit about that. And of course, the let uh, the letter, the stuff that happened there makes me angry that my grandparents who lived in Waldwick, New Jersey, never took me <laughs> to these places. <laughs> but I'll let it, I'll let it go. Um, well, it's too late now. They, yeah. they tore down Tyson's farms <laughs> and some real estate strip mall development or something like that. Yeah. What did you listen to growing up? What kind of, formed your your musical interests and your tastes in music and what direction you wanted to go into? You know, I, I'm, Michael, I've always had really eclectic influences. My mom was uh, a, a professional uh, singer and performer on Broadway and in film. And so there was always some Broadway show tune on the piano and uh, some aria playing on the record player. So, uh, you know, my early influences included classical music and Broadway show tunes, you know, all the great, you know, Broadway musical composers. Uh, and then, of course, I got a transistor radio and started listening to all the top 40. So my influences were varied and disparate from uh, Leonard Bernstein to Gershwin and to, uh, you know, the Beatles, the Dylan and the Stones, uh, Stevie Wonder. Uh, the Supremes, uh, and uh, I absorbed all those influences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got a, a, my first guitar when I was nine. I learned four chords, started playing Beatles songs and Monkeys songs. And it wasn't too long before I, I started using those four chords to write some of my own songs. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. And as you went along, you picked up other instruments uh, along the way and, and learned those. And uh, incorporated those. Did you have a first, or, or do you, did you have a, a favorite record growing up? Just one that just kind of stood up above the others. Well, um, some of the first <laughs> when my 
I have three siblings and one of four kids. And uh, one day we got a, a, a solicitation in the mail from the Columbia Record Club. And without my parents' knowledge, we filled it out and we ordered all these records. <laughs> uh, and this was eight-track cassettes because we had an eight-track cassette player. Uh, and so we got um, Bridge Over Troubled Waters uh, and we got Blood, Sweat and Tears and we got uh, a Johnny Cash uh, tape and uh, uh, a Judy Collins tape. And uh, so... I have to say, Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell were two of my biggest influences in terms of uh, songwriting. Mm -hmm. uh, and my first uh, exposure to a Joni Mitchell uh, song was uh, on uh, Michael from Mountains on a Judy Collins album. And so uh, those were the songwriters uh, who as I described earlier, they painted pictures with their words and music uh, and created these worlds mm -hmm. uh, that uh, really transported the listener. And uh, so uh, I just absorbed all those influences and, and, you know, musically in terms of genre and idiom, they're really varied. Uh, and anyone that listens to one of my albums uh, knows that they're pretty eclectic. Yeah. Um, and record companies never could get a handle on it. They always complained. They didn't know where to rack my records. <laughs> Is this rock or pop or folk or jazz or country? Where do we put it? Uh, but I was always proud of that. To, you know, to me, I'm, 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 like I said, I'm writing short stories and, and setting them to music. And uh, the, the music genre, the idiom, the feel, the style, the groove is really – all down to what best serves the story. Yeah, I, I realized that I didn't know what kind of artist you were when the uh, the B-side of Ariel was Funny Papers, which is this jazzy song. I think it's the only real big-time jazzy song on the record. Sure. Well, if, if you listen to all nine studio albums, you'll find uh, <laughs> at least an album two's worth of, of, of straight-ahead jazz tunes. Yeah. yeah uh, and, sure. you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, I mentioned Broadway composers leonard bernstein west side story was really my first exposure to the jazz idiom although interpreted through the lens of, of a broadway musical uh but there was some pretty hardcore uh jazz in there in terms of uh harmony and rhythm and, and melody and that, that exposed me to the broader world of, of jazz and when i studied music at city college in new york uh, I, I I studied uh, with jazz teachers, so in terms of my uh, harmony education uh, and my uh, really getting to the notes, nuts and bolts of uh, of harmony and song structure and composition, it was mostly within a jazz idiom. There were some classical components to it, but it was very much within that jazz idiom. You know, there's there's always a strong uh, undertow of jazz in even my pop or, or folk songs. Uh, it uh, I, I, I musically, I, I always think of what I do as as, as a kind of pop fusion, um, which is that uh, you know, in some ways it, it's pop because it's you know it's presented as popular music, uh, but it's a fusion uh, of 
whether it's country and jazz or uh, or pop and jazz. You know, one of my favorite idioms growing up was R and B, uh, which of all the pop idioms uh, is the most that's steeped in jazz in terms of jazz changes and harmony, uh, and uh, you know the the, the use of uh, uh, that jazz vocabulary. So to an extent, I hear elements of that jazz education and background in almost everything that I write. Okay. The fact that you play multiple instruments leads me to ask, do you have a preference of writing on a guitar, on a piano, or do you just do it on both? Do you do it on other things as well? Well, you know what? It depends on (laughs) what's at hand. It depends on what's within arm's reach. You know, I've written a book on songwriting. It's called The Songwriter's Handbook. Uh, And the whole premise of the book is is that there's inspiration, and that's inexplicable. It's hard to teach, but you can create an appropriate setting that's quiet and and remote and uninterrupted, whereby you can invite inspiration. But beyond that inspiration, there's craft, and, and... those are the choices that you make deciding what to do with the inspiration once you get it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, that craft of songwriting uh, is really a process of making decisions, of making choices about what you're going to do next. And one of those early choices is what instrument you're going to write on. Because I, I pick up a guitar in my hands. Uh, there's a muscle memory that my hands and fingers have in terms of what kind of groove or rhythm or harmonic progressions I'll play on a guitar. And those idioms and that vocabulary is going to be a little different to the same uh, related uh, progressions and harmonies if I sit down at a keyboard, at a piano. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, I learn them in a different way. They're different kinds of instruments. They lend themselves to different expressions. And, you know, I can write a song on either, uh, but one might push me in one direction as whereas, you know, guitar might push me in this sort of folk country realm, uh, whereas the keyboard might push me more into a jazz pop realm. But even that's contingent on what kind of sounds that I'm using, uh, whether it's an acoustic guitar or classical or an electric or uh, an electric keyboard or an acoustic keyboard sound. But these are choices that you can either make uh, consciously uh, and direct where the song is going to go, or you can let the song choose for itself. In other words, you can just follow your nose and let the song make the decision. Sometimes the song will do that. Sometimes the song uh, will inevitably suggest w- w- where it wants to go. You know, and when that happens, it's great. I just make sure to write it down and record it so I don't forget it. <laughs> but more often than not, I find, at least these days, that I have to assume responsibility for deciding what the song is going to be about and where it's going to go. And the only way I can do that is by making those crucial decisions early on in the process. Because the sooner I know what the song is about, the sooner I can construct a a way to navigate to that goal, Mm -hmm. to find how to get there. Okay. You brought up your, your, uh, you wrote a book, but you also, before I want to get to, uh, 
American Lullaby, you also wrote or published a book in 1985 called The Complete Guide to Synthesizers, Sequencers, and Drum Machines. How did that come about? Well, uh, just inadvertently, I had been kicked off of my record label uh, in uh, the early 80s and sort of was left to my own devices. But uh, synthesizers had just come out and were being developed and marketed and uh, going through a lot of evolution. And I was fortunate enough to see a demonstration of, of uh, uh, what at the time was the most powerful synthesizer on the market, the, the, the Synclavier or the Synclavier by New England Digital. Uh, and a guy named David Nickturn was the uh, uh, North American distributor for the Synclavier. Uh, David Nickturn was also a songwriter. He wrote a beautiful song called Midnight on the Oasis that uh, was a hit from Maria Moldauer. Yeah, sure. But he also had offices in Manhattan, and uh, he was kind enough to let me go up there and make a deal with him to rent an hour a week because I couldn't afford the cost of a, 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 a Synclavier, which at the time had, had a price tag of $50,000. Wow. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, he was uh, amenable to my coming up there once a week, and I became pretty adept at it, and I learned it, and I got real excited about it. And one day a phone call came uh, into the offices uh, from Music Sales, a book publisher, looking for someone to write a book on all these new synthesizers. Uh, and the receptionist said, well, team seems to know a lot about synthesizers, and they put me on the phone. And so without any you know, uh, synthesizer prior training or audio <laughs> training, but by virtue of my being a quick study and having immersed myself in the top of the line synthesizer, I talked my way into a book deal with music sales and authored what became uh, the first consumer guide for synthesizers and sequencers and drum machines, uh, as well as a book called Synthesizer Basics, which uh, is still used at some universities around the world. I think the fact that I was so new to it myself uh, enabled me to describe these new instruments in pretty much layman's terms uh, in a way that was easy to understand for the typical reader yeah. uh, because I was just wrapping my head around it and, and it forced me to really distill uh, what was happening, my understanding of it uh, in easy, easily digestible uh, paragraphs. And uh, it was really well received. Uh, and uh, I did a video series based on the uh, on the book, and uh, Intro to Synthesis, uh, parts one, two, and three. Uh, and I did that at a, a year after the book came out. And just a few years ago, someone in the Netherlands asked if they could post it on YouTube. And I said, sure. I, you know, 30 years had passed. And, uh, and, and since then, that Intro to Synthesis video series, uh, which I did under the auspices of the New York School of Synthesis, uh, it has gone viral. Uh, and, uh, you know, a week doesn't go by that I, that I don't get email from somewhere around the planet, whether it's uh, Moscow or Tokyo or Sydney, Australia, or, uh, you know, Canada, California, you name it, uh, almost every continent, from hip-hop artists and rap producers and uh, EDM, you know, dance uh, musicians uh, thanking me for trying to explain 
the elements of electronic music synthesis uh, in a way that uh, made sense to them. Uh, and uh, so that's something I'm real proud of. Yeah. And uh, uh, the, the comments that describe the production values of the video uh, are, are always amusing. Uh, <laughs> but I urge your uh, listeners to, to check them out. They're pretty funny and also informative because even after three decades or more, uh, the reason they remain relevant and, and are really the go-to uh, videos for uh, uh, electronic s- synthesis, uh, the reason they're relevant is because although all these microprocessors and, and the, uh, the, the electronic components of all these uh, amazing instruments have evolved and matured and got more and more sophisticated and powerful, the, the, the fundamental physics of sound have not changed one iota. So everything I talk about in Synthesizer Basics and the Intro to Synthesis video series, it it remains the same. Uh, And uh, no matter how sophisticated or modern or new your synthesizer is, it still obeys the same rules of sound. (laughs) For sure. All right. Why don't we get into American Lullaby, your most recent release? This album came out in 2021. And uh, I was curious as to when you started the writing process, because it, to me, it became pretty clear listening to this that some of these songs came together well before the release of the album. Well, uh, American Lullaby was initially inspired by waking up uh, over six years ago uh, one morning uh, to discover. Uh, uh, along with my fellow uh, 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 countrymen and women to our shock and amazement that uh, a bankrupt real estate developer from New York and known money launderer for the Russian mafia had become president of the United States. And there is no overstating how mind-blowing that event was and continues to be uh, and how uh, world-altering it was and all the the impending doom that it foreshadowed uh, in the minds of, of, in particular, New Yorkers who knew him better than the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. So all the songs on, on the new album, American Lullaby, uh, are my personal take on all the crazy stuff that's happened over the last six years, uh, including the polarized politics, including climate change, including the pandemic. Pandemic, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, almost every crisis that, that we have shared, not just in America, but globally around the world, Yeah, uh, I touch on. And it's not really so much a political album, Michael, as it is, I, I see it sort of as a gossip album. It's, it's really talking about the kind of stuff that people talk about when they see friends and mm-hmm. uh, or sit around the table at dinner. Uh, and... It, it was, uh, you know, the first time I really was trying to understand what was happening in the world because it was really frightening and continues to be. Um, but uh, it, it happened in such a dramatic way and all these crises falling one after the other uh, that uh, I couldn't help but try and understand it. Uh, and my way of trying to understand, trying to wrap my head around something inexplicable and inexplicable is to uh, try to write a song about it because that helps to crystallize. Uh, it forces me to, to really grasp and uh, try to understand 
what it, what it is the story that I'm depicting and, and trying mm. to tell. What was the um, musically? What was going on for you at the time? I, I'm, I'm asking because the first couple of songs on here do not have a chorus. They have uh, you have a recurring line, but there's no real chorus. And I wondered if something inspired that in your writing. I, I can't really say, Michael. Um, I do know that you know it's kind of it, it, it's curious now that you mentioned it because I read a statistic recently that uh, in a lyrical analysis of pop songs over the last couple of decades, a very discernible trend has become uh, apparent, which is that there are fewer and fewer lyrics and today's pop songs compared to a decade or two ago. And not only are there fewer lyrics in pop songs, but there are more repetitions of those few lyrics in pop songs. And, you know, I attribute that to the unfortunate algorithms uh, that uh, programmers use to try and predict what's going to happen next or what they should sign mm -hmm. uh, instead of using taste and quality <laughs> and their own goddamn ears. Right. <laughs> and uh, by allowing these algorithms to make choices for it, it uh, inevitably leads to homogenization, which I think uh, sacrifices the quality of music. But fortunately, mm -hmm. there are enough people with talent that keep breaking through. And I, 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 I raise this phenomena, the idea that there are fewer and fewer lyrics in pop songs, just to make note of the fact that I have completely defied the trend. You have. <laughs> I, I, I can't ignore the fact that, particularly in this most recent album, American Lullaby, I find that in order to cover the material that, I, that I'm uh, trying to, to build a, a, a world around, I find myself with more lyrics than I've ever written in words before. They are chock full of lyrics. Yes. Uh, and I don't think they're superfluous. I think they are necessary to tell some of these complex tales that, that I'm relaying in American Lullaby. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so uh, it's just more of a challenge to perform these lies because I <laughs> perform them live because I, I have enough trouble remembering the lyrics from songs that I wrote, you know, 40 years ago. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's meant to serve the song yeah. and uh, to, 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 to serve the story that it is that I'm telling. And if it means a few extra verses, uh, if it means diverging from uh, what people might think of as a typical pop song structure, uh, then that's okay by me. Yeah. The title track kicks off the album and it kind of sets the table for what's to come. Don't you fret now, don't you cry. an American lullaby Manifest destiny's a lie It's an American lullaby Half moon sailing through the night Crack of a musket fired first light Keep your powder dry It's an American lullaby And 
you go into too much stuff and and I love the irony of the title of the song because of the enormous number of words and syllables. And you just touched on the, the question that I had as to how do you perform a song like too much stuff live? I would be terrified to tackle that many words. <laughs> uh, well, I have to admit that it was a serious challenge. It took me, uh, well, I was going to say weeks to learn how to do it live, but I'm still learning how to do it live. I'm still learning how and when and where to breathe, to take a breath as I'm singing, you know, this torrent of lyrics in, in the song Too Much Stuff. I got too much stuff. I got way more shoes than it's possible to use. I got too much stuff. I've got a myriad of devices and way too many vices. I've got no recollection of ever starting this collection, and I guess my innate curiosity, combined with sheer fastidiosity, reached escape velocity, determining my ultimate direction. Upon reflection, I can't ignore my obvious predilection for too much stuff. I've got multiple containers full of colanders and strainers. I got too much stuff. I've got various vessels filled with mortars and pestles. It's a real mess up, though. I probably started as a child collecting bottle caps and stamps, gradually over time, grew to keyboards, guitars, and amps. I never saw myself as a hoarder with an order disorder, but after the court order, I concluded I was clearly on the border. I got too much stuff. I admit it's almost comical. It's certainly not economical. I got too much stuff. Once tried to keep a chronicle, storage fees alone were astronomical. My friend said it's a symptom, some deep-seated neurosis. So I went to a shrink for a professional psych diagnosis. I said to him, Doc, give it to me straight. What's my likely prognosis? He scheduled me for 52 weeks of hypnosis. I got too much stuff. Uh, but it's a fun challenge. And, and in part, the, the feeling of the song Too Much Stuff itself has a an element of anxiety about all this stuff. is just too much. Yeah. And so... If I'm uh, frantically trying to get those lyrics out, that almost lends itself to the nature of the song. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I kind of get away with it. Although, as you suggest, people are amazed that I can remember all the words. Yes, it is. It's a lot. And, and they're not easy turns of phrase, a lot of them either. Some of these are very difficult little phrases that are thrown in there that you have to, you can't stumble on them or you're going to get behind. <laughs> And yet what what tickles me is the idea is that almost everybody that writes uh, a comment about the song will email me to say that they totally relate to it because they also have too much stuff. So I think it's one of those songs uh, that might be uh, more familiar to folks than they'd like to admit. Yeah, I think a lot of us have too much stuff. The uh, the song Halfway Normal World is uh, the first one that brings in an actual uh, traditional chorus, uh, a song about wanting to get things back to normal, which or wanting things to get back to normal, which I think we all went through with the with the you know 2020 lockdowns and pandemic and everything. I'm gonna throw a big party, invite everybody I know. Kibbits and mingle, serve pretzels and Pringles. We'll sit side by side and toe to toe. And lose ourselves in deep conversation, playing lots of silly games. Laughing, we'll smile, and then after a while, we'll barely remember our names. All lined up in the kitchen, the counter, with the tablecloth unfurled. I wish I could get back to a halfway normal world. I wish we could get back to a halfway normal world. 
that lamp, and I, I didn't have it. I have no taste at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, I don't Just know. Just remember, you said it. <laughs> My question here was, where did the conversation at the end of that song come from? Uh, it was uh, on one of those rare moments during the lockdown where, um, uh, you know, some close family was together for the first time in months. Uh, and I just uh, set up a tape recorder and we just sort of goofed around. Uh, and I carefully edited it into uh, that song because, you know, the whole album uh, is, I, I see it sort of almost as a time capsule of this very weird couple of years we've gone through mm-hmm. uh, to document it. Uh, and especially a song like uh, Halfway Normal World. You know, there's so much about the pandemic that uh, I know we'd all prefer to forget. But uh, it was such a profound change and, and, and an impact that resonates still and will for the rest of our lives uh, and our children's lives uh, that we can't completely forget about it. Uh, and so uh, I, I tried to uh, describe what it felt like to, to be afraid to, you know, to embrace your family mm-hmm. uh, that lived, you know, in another town or another household. Uh, and uh, that, that constant uh, undertow of anxiety uh, that made it frightening to go to the store to get a quart of milk. At the same time, what became really obvious through the pandemic was that social inequities and injustices that we always were aware of became that much more starkly obvious and apparent. Uh, And so it occurred to me that it it wouldn't make any sense to aspire to get back to a 100% normal world because we could certainly do better. Uh, and that it might make sense to aspire to at least a halfway normal world yeah. uh, in the hope that, that we could learn a little bit from that, that experience and, and, and find a way to make the world a little more equitable and yeah. fair. The swing of things seems like a natural progression lyrically from halfway normal world. It's, uh, it's very appropriate that it follows it on the album. I was down for the count, I was out of commission I was having a bad day I was definitely in a precarious position But if you ask me how I'm doing now This is what I'd say, say I'm slowly getting back into the swing of things I'm actually looking forward to what tomorrow brings Things are looking up, it's what the bluebird sings I'm slowly getting back into the swing of things uh, There's some unusual instrumentation on this um, You've got ukulele, trumpet, it sounds like tuba on this one Can you just describe what you know the writing process was on that one? Because uh, you talked about, you know, just you grab what's handy And, and what, what the song requires or what you you know what direction you want the song to go to which which one happened on that one uh i had a ukulele within arm's reach i picked it up and i started uh uh strumming some chords because i was dealing with some very difficult topics on on american lullaby i was also conscious of of wanting to balance it with songs that were hopeful and optimistic um, and uh, so the swing of things was one 
such song. Uh, the idea that, all right, we just had a, a tough time, but uh, I think I'm about to get back into the swing of things. And I'm I'm still recovering, but I'm ready to face the world again. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was something that I, I recognized in my friends and family, you know, going from a period of lockdown and paralysis to reengaging with life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's something that... Uh, it seemed to suggest the, the 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 feel and the nature of a ukulele. I mean, you can play a lot of beautiful sad songs on a ukulele, but there's something about a ukulele that's a little mischievous. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I thought it, it it was just right for that the story at hand. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. Mischievous, a good word for it. The Russians are coming is one where you chose the, you made the choice to sing with a, a, a an exaggerated Russian accent. Uh, what uh, was that always the plan, or did that kind of come in after you wrote it? Did you experiment with different things? <laughs> well, I have to say, <laughs> it's uh, uh, it, it, it it was uh, an ambitious choice, um, but eventually, after I relaxed enough I just figured what the hell I'll go for it He's a pop star. His daddy, Aragalorov, owns a big car and a big jet and a big yacht. Friend of Vladimir, a billionaire oligarch. To the youthful idiot they toasted, the stage was set in his concert hall he hosted. Trump's Miss Universe Moscow pageant. Later at the hotel, well, you can just imagine. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, you know, talk about a lot of lyrics. Every word of the Russians are c- coming uh, is backed up by the bipartisan Senate Committee on R- Russian Interference in uh, the, um, the 2016 election, presidential election. Uh, and the hundreds and hundreds of demonstrated, documented contacts and communications between uh, Russian intelligence agents in the Trump campaign uh, are backed up, and as I say, a bipartisan uh, committee uh, in Congress. Uh, so there's not a line in, in that song that there's not documentary evidence from. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I tried to make it as funny as could be, uh, but it tells a terrifying tale. It tells the, 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 t- the tale of a successful you know, intelligence campaign on the part of uh, Vladimir Putin to affect the uh, American election, not just America's election, but uh, England's uh, uh, boneheaded decision to uh, uh, depart from the European Union, Brexit. Uh, Both campaigns were financed, and just a week ago it came out that Russia spent over $300 million uh, on an an intelligence uh, campaign to influence our election, their election, uh, elections around the world, to really disrupt successful democracies uh, in the West 
uh, because otherwise they couldn't compete with us with the story that we told. Um, and uh, people might be bored of hearing Russia, Russia, Russia. <laughs> but if you look at the facts, and as I say, the bipartisan congressional committee, it wasn't a Democratic committee, bipartisan Republicans, Dems both agreed uh, that these things happened. Uh, and uh, ultimately, as the song states, the only reason Trump wasn't wearing a prison haircut is that uh, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort kept their mouth shut. We move on from the uh, incidentally, when I got the lyric sheet, I love the uh, Boris and Natasha uh, cartoons in the, uh, yeah. in the lyric sheet. Um, Good stuff. <laughs> we move on to Sorry About That, which is a song about how we're wrecking the planet. Um, again, uh, uh, the contrast of the horrifying things that are happening in terms of the fires and deforestation and things like that, uh, pollution with the, you know, our bad kind of, uh, kind of uh, messaging in the song is, is, uh, is vintage Dean Friedman. I think. We did real damage to earth's thermostat. Sorry about that. Sorry about that We didn't mean to be so mean All we had to do is keep the forest green And the air and water clean And use a little less polyethylene Instead we engaged in meaningless tit-for-tat Sorry about that, sorry about that As to a world of infinite beauty Plenty to share way more than enough We fumbled our stewardship, failed in our duty Squandered your birthright for frivolous stuff Well, I mean, it's an earnest, sincere apology to my kids and everybody's kids in the next generation and beyond, asking their forgiveness for the horrible mess we left. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we had a responsibility to protect the beautiful planet that we were blessed with and, 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 and given, and uh, we really squandered our stewardship. And... Uh, so the song tries to depict, you know, this terrible tragedy that is still unfolding, uh, uh, but in a wry uh, way, kind of shoulders shrug. Sorry about that. You know, we just messed up your world. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it used to be the uh, the what people referred to as the looming climate uh, disaster or the pending climate disaster. Well, it is no longer looming, nor is it pending. It's here. Everybody knows it. Uh, in fact, <laughs> some of it's bearing down on Florida right now. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the song Welcome to Stupid Town is, is one long laundry list of our preventable societal problems. Um, it seemed like you, you had a lot to say that you condensed into one song there. In Stupid Town, we built the wall. We built it 45 feet tall to keep out the folks from Smarty Town. Of course, they just went and tunneled underground. 
Welcome to Stupid Town. Our main street is a bit run down. We ran our banks into the ground here in Stupid Town. In Stupid Town, the mayor decreed kids no longer had to read. Just watch TV and you'll succeed. Look at me, he said. Even the librarian agreed. Welcome to Stupid Town, where facts will only make you frown. Our willful ignorance is profound here in Stupid Town. In Stupid Town, we dug a well. It served the residents very well. Though after the spill, it had a funny smell. Except for that, you could hardly tell. <laughs> Welcome to Stupid Town. The sky is green, the water's brown. Oh, far and wide, we are renowned here in Stupid Town. In well, these are such polarized times. Uh, and at the same time, I, I, I always try to make a sincere effort to to understand the other point of view, to, you know, put myself in other people's shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's still two dominant political parties in this country. Uh, and uh, from my perspective, it seems like the other party's lost its mind. But uh, in, in an effort, an attempted empathy, uh, I, I try to interpret what that other party, uh, how it justifies some of its behaviors that sometimes seem directly uh, in opposition to their purported values. Uh, and so the song does try to do that with some sense of humor, but it's also talking about some very serious cultural and human rights issues uh, that there's a lot of controversy about. And unfortunately, those differences are only exacerbated by politicians trying to score points by being uh, as mean and abusive as possible because that makes the headlines. Yeah. Uh, it's a Trumpian uh, approach to politics. Um, and it's unfortunate. Uh, it, it leads to the kind of extremism that we continue to see. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, look, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to give something for folks to at least smile about, even if, if they were having their hypocrisy poked fun at. Yeah. Um, but it's a problem I have with the whole album, uh, which is that uh, I was dealing, as I say, with difficult themes. I, I didn't want to send everyone rushing off, screaming into the hills in horror. Yeah. Uh, and it, it wasn't until I came upon the idea of a, a, a lullaby, which helped me frame the songs and in particular the title track, which is that if you think about lullabies in every culture around the world, they all share something really curious in common, uh, which is the idea that picture a, a parent rocking their baby to sleep, uh, singing a sweet, gentle melody and, and soft, soothing tones. But if you listen to the lyrics of almost every lullaby, they are terrifying. You know, rock a by baby on the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock, when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, down will come, baby cradle and all bouncing on its head. How? First of all, how the hell is that any way to put a child <laughs> to sleep? Second of all, what are they doing up in the tree? Yeah. Um, but it, it, I concluded that it's, uh, it has to be a universal yearning on the part of parents everywhere to uh, instill crucial, critical life-saving information into the minds of their children, into the next generation. Uh, but to do it in a, in a soothing way, it doesn't terrify the kids. 
and so I said, aha, all right, well, the idea of a lullaby is a way to, uh, to express these difficult themes, uh, but in a way that, that might make it more uh, accessible. Uh, and uh, so that's how I approached the whole album, all the songs and the structure of the album uh, mm -hmm. as a lullaby, uh, you know, telling these perilous tales about, you know, don't go, uh, you know, uh, fall asleep on the, uh, the top of a tree. You're going to fall down and break your head. And to do it in a way, uh, as I say, that, that wouldn't send people uh, running in, in terror into the hills. Mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, that was true of the title track, American Lullaby. Because for whatever reasons, I took it upon myself, the challenge of, uh, uh, of depicting in a song 400 years of American violence, uh, including our two original sins, uh, the massacre of the indigenous population, and slavery, uh, both abetted by our inexplicable love affair with guns. And, you know, I, I, I took that as a challenge, but again, don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm proud to be an American and I love my country and I, I cherish those values that America aspires to but doesn't always achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, but but unless you're honest with your history and your past, you're just doomed to make those same uh, terrible mistakes over and over again. And so uh, American Lullaby is my attempt modestly to tell that story, 400 years of violence, uh, in, in a, a five-minute pop song. Yeah. And it, it touches on all of those difficult themes, but uh, I, I try to do it in a way uh, that also tells a, a rich human history uh, that's brought us to the point we are at today, um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, because the problems that we are dealing with today uh, around the world, not just here in this country, uh, have their origins very often uh, in the distant past, sometimes hundreds of years ago. Uh, we didn't get here overnight, all, all the things that we face. Right. <laughs> uh, and so uh, American Lullaby just tries to remind folks uh, of that reality, uh, how, where we came from, uh, how we got here, and hopefully what we can do to make things better. Yeah. The question I have is, is how much are you seeing in terms of pushback from people on, on the political aspects of it? and of the album and and when you perform live do you get people that get upset with you because we live now in a world where we can have we can have the news tell us the news that we want to hear and not the news that we maybe necessarily need to hear well look uh it's a polarized world and um i uh, am on one side of that pole <laughs> And, uh, you know, I have a, a, a newsletter that I send out. Um, and uh, when I'm compelled to, I will occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally go on a rant about uh, what I consider is the inhumane uh, and abusive uh, acts of uh, what I consider that extreme MAGA right. Whenever I do that in a newsletter, uh, I lose uh, a certain amount of uh, audience members who unsubscribe. And I, I feel bad about that, but 
I, I'm not one of those artists that's going to bend over backwards just to not offend a part of my audience. Right. Uh, I, I'm going to write songs uh, that talk about what I actually believe. Uh, and as a songwriter, I feel like if I'm telling the truth about what my belief, then I'm doing right by the song. I, I, I'm a writer that abides by the Dr. Seuss philosophy, which is, uh, as Horton the Elephant says, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, and elephants faithful 100%. That's when he agreed to sit on Daisy, uh, his egg, uh, while she went on vacation to Florida. <laughs> it's going to be a hurricane. But he made a promise, uh, and he, he he said something, and he 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 meant to uh, stay true to that statement, to to say what he meant and to mean what he said. And that's how I feel when I'm writing a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and if some people are offended by it, I'm really sorry. I'm just trying to tell the truth as I see it. Yeah, uh, it'll either maybe inform some people if if they have some respect for my worldview. And if not, uh, then it may just turn them off to what it is I do. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of turning people off, um, I think when I looked at the, just at looked at the track list, I thought that song's going to make people mad just because it's got that name in the title. And we're talking about riding with Biden. They may call him Sleepy Joe. <laughs> There's one thing for sure I know He's got more decency in his little toe Than you know Riding It's time for the siding Riding No more dividing Riding Our future is riding Riding He rode shotgun for Obama He'll dispense with all the melodrama He's good friends with the Dalai Lama you know who loves him most? Your mama. I'm riding. There's no use in hiding. Riding. Currents of history colliding. Riding. Can't take no more backside. Riding. Uh, and I wondered when you wrote that. It seems like it was written before the election. And uh, I wondered if you, uh, if it was written in advance of the election, it was obviously written well before the album came out. And I wondered if you had any second thoughts about putting it on the album after, you know, the election had had long since passed. You know what? I, I did question it. And yet, because I, I, I viewed American Lullaby, the whole album, as a documentation of what we're going through. It was my strong belief that the very fact of Joe Biden depriving Trump of a second term was something that we all of us should acknowledge and be grateful for. Uh, for whatever his shortcomings, and he certainly has a few, he, uh, by preventing Trump from having another term, he did a great service to this country. Uh, And so uh, I think that's worth acknowledging, even if I get flack from, you know, Trump supporters uh, who, you know, are happy to troll the video. But look, I'm proud of it. Yeah, uh, and surprise, surprise! Turns out that uh, Sleepy Joe is doing a damn good job of late, uh, and keeping this ship afloat, uh, and ha- hopefully heading in a better direction than it was uh, in the previous term. Yeah, uh, and I know that there's a whole part of this country that that uh, disagrees with that, but um, look, I'm just gonna 
call them as I see them. That's what you have to do as an artist. And uh, wear a mask. That's a song that uh, I think, depending on your viewpoint on medical science, uh, it can be a, a song where you're a champion of it or a song that you hate without even having heard it. If you're headed to the grocery store to stock up on some food, try to keep in mind what rules apply. Have some consideration for your neighbors, don't be rude. It really isn't that hard to comply. Wear a mask, wear a mask. You know, it isn't all that much to ask. Unless you want to wind up lying in a casket. Wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask. Though one day soon we hope they come up with a cure. Along with an effective safe vaccine Until that day We must endure By practicing social distancing And good hygiene And wear a mask Wear a mask We must be equal to the task Or else in a viral mist of COVID You will bask Wear a mask Wear a mask Wear a mask Obviously, that was a, an important part of the last few years to document. What was your approach to that? You know, again, I, I, I view the album inevitably as a, a time capsule for for a, a very unique period in, in American history that was rife with confusion and uh, uh, you know uh, challenges across the board. Uh, you know, from the polarized politics, the pandemic, to the climate, to uh, you name it, every one of these challenges. And, you know, wear a mask uh, was, you know, originally just sort of a silly public service announcement, uh, which, again, I thought twice about including on the album because I thought, wow, you know, once this is over, people are not going to want to remember this. <laughs> but but then I I decided that, you know what? Like it or not, it's important for us to remember it. It's important for us to remember how mind-blowing this pandemic has been for uh, this society and every society around the planet. Look, over 6 million people died from COVID. Uh, And you can argue all the statistics that you want. But in terms of wearing a mask, uh, the people that deny vaccinations and the people that don't like to wear masks are still dying in higher numbers than people that do. And so for that reason alone, uh, I think it's necessary to have documented that perspective. Look, there were bad calls made as we were learning more and more about the progression of the disease, a disease that we still know nothing about um, in terms of the long-term consequences of having it. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't assume that anyone has the benefit of true insight into what's wrong or what's right uh, medically or how to approach it. But there were some very obvious numbers statistically in terms of who was dying and who wasn't Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, someone in the Northeast uh, I couldn't ignore. Uh, And, you know, I only hope that uh, the people in charge have learned some of the lessons of what we've gone through to do a better job. Look, I'm a skeptic of the medical community from day one, from 
top to bottom. Uh, and yet, you know, everyone needs to make uh, a, a personal choice and assessment about what makes sense to them, given the facts at hand. Of course, if you make up your own facts, then, you know, uh, you got a problem. Yeah. The last song I want to bring up, uh, I want to get into every single one. I, I probably already got into more than I meant to, but uh, is just another birthday song. And I, I love that you framing this uh, as the uh, the happy birthday that we all know has had a good run, but it's time for a new birthday song. You must have had a lot of ambition, an emission on a mission. You must have been a real good swimmer to beat out all the competition. And just like Rocky Balboa, you whooped all the other spermatozoa. And it's a good thing it all worked out that way. Or you wouldn't be able to be here to hear us sing today. We're really, really glad that you were born. You know it's wonderful to hear that you survived another year. You like the great big box of buttered popcorn. You know we really, really love you. We just can't get enough of you. We celebrate this oh so special day. You know you must have looked so cute in your birthday suit. Well, look, the Hill Sisters, the two kindergarten teachers, uh, wrote uh, the happy birthday that we know 125 years ago. Great song. I much respect for it. But as you said, I, I, I do think it's time for uh, an upgrade. Uh, I'm not sure that my uh, candidate is going to be embraced as that. But uh, I, I, I felt like that it had all the elements of a good birthday song. And uh, uh, so, so far, the reaction to it has been uh, universally hilarious. Uh, so, uh, and in terms of including it on the album, you know, as I said earlier, I was determined to balance, uh, some of the doom and gloom on the album mm -hmm. with some optimism and songs that were uplifting and hopeful. And, uh, I, I believe that it's incumbent upon us, even in the, the midst of really troubled times, uh, to still insist on celebrating things that need to be celebrated, you know, to not just surrender to gloom and doom. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and to, to find joy and happiness uh, where it is to recognize it and acknowledge it. Yeah. So just another birthday song tries to do that, even as it acknowledges that, uh, you know, there's still potential for a pandemic and a lockdown and social distancing. But even so, you need to, uh, to celebrate that thing that happens once a year. Yeah. Dean, do you have a favorite song on this album? The one that kind of is nearer and dearer to your heart than the others? Well, you know, I get a kick out of all of them. You know, when someone asks a songwriter if they have a favorite song, they're like little kids. You love them all. It's just some are better behaved than others. <laughs> some are more mischievous. Some, you know, you know, call up and ask for money. Some write home and send money. I, you know, I, uh, I tend to have an affinity, uh, an affection for those songs that were the biggest challenge compositionally. So, for example, the title track, American Lullaby, was a, a, a difficult writing challenge. And uh, I feel like that 
I, I did as best that I, that I possibly could have, and the reaction to it has been really powerful and, and uh, gratifying. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know that's uh, you know a serious, powerful dynamic, and, and dealing with sober uh, subject matter. Uh, at the same time, a song like "Just Another Birthday Song" just cracks me up every time I, I hear it, every time I play it and sing it, and it makes people laugh. So uh, I'm proud of that as well. Dean, are you going to sing uh, "The Russians Are Coming" in that Russian accent when you perform it live? You know what? <laughs> I'm still working on that. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> All right. Uh, the album is called "American Lullaby." Dean, is there a place where people can buy this CD that benefits you more than, say, going to Amazon? Absolutely. Uh, I encourage folks to buy direct from the artist uh, because you have to keep in mind that all the streaming services like uh, Spotify or Deezer or Amazon or Apple Music, they are paying one thousandth of a penny per stream. It's, uh, it's highway robbery. Uh, it's obscene. It's criminal. Uh, the only way to support an artist uh, is to buy direct from their website. Uh, and so I encourage folks to do that. Yeah, don't Spotify, buy direct. Uh, or, or, you know, do Spotify, but keep in mind that the, that the money you're paying for a subscription, even though it, it offers you a plethora of great music uh, from artists all over the world and throughout time, that Spotify is not compensating those artists except for a very uh, choice few. And uh, if you want to support your artist, as I say, buy direct. Okay. So that means going to deanfriedman.com. That's right. I guess I should have said that, right? Yeah, deanfriedman.com. Right. That's okay. Uh, it's, and it's my uh, job is the host to help I you out with that. It. <laughs> and I invite your listeners to uh, send me an email uh, to dean at deanfriedman.com or any page on the website, uh, deanfriedman.com, and uh, get on the uh, email lists and you, you get occasional newsletters with gig alerts and recording updates and occasional rants and raves from an independent musician. Okay. Well, it's good to see that you're still out there. I know your, uh, your website is teasing a, uh, a tour in the UK in 2023 in the spring. Is that right? And well, uh, in the spring, but also I have a, a week's worth of a dates in January, 2023 okay. in the UK. But uh, I'm not sure when this uh, podcast is coming out, but I have a gig upcoming uh, in the United States, in New York City, October 8th, Saturday, October 8th, at Chelsea Table and Stage. It's a brand new club with a really beautiful piano and great sound system and delicious food, as I understand. Uh, and it's my first New York City gig in over five years. Wow. Uh, and uh, so if anyone's in the New York metropolitan area, uh, I urge you to go to my website, deanfreeman.com, and you'll see a link uh, to purchase tickets. Uh, and uh, I hope to see somebody there. Yeah, that sounds good. This will come out before that date. So hopefully uh, a few of the listeners up in that uh, part of the world will be able to to make it to that show. That's great. It's, it's been great uh, talking to you about uh, both American Lullaby and your, your self-titled debut album. I, I just uh, still... Still loving that album, and uh, the the new one hasn't uh, is you know I'm still getting to know it. I'm still getting comfortable with it, and 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 learning all the ins and outs of it. But uh, I I think you have continued your career in a in a very uh, creative and interesting way. And and in, you know I think for an artist to continue to write interesting music after 45 years is is an amazing thing. So thank you for the music, and thank you for your time for the show. 
Well, uh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me, Michael. And uh, all I can attribute that longevity to is uh, s- stubborn persistence. <laughs> so uh, you'd be well. I hope uh, that hurricane that bear is, is bearing down on you uh, doesn't do too much damage. Stay safe and uh, and take care. Catch you down the line. Thank you so much. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.